we're going to continue our walk through Luke's gospel and uh, look at this passage in Luke chapter 9. This will date you a little bit. Uh, Do you remember this line from a children's cartoon? Who is this superhero? Oh, I'm glad to see a nod, at least one nod. Nick gets it. Anybody else? That's right, Tim, you were brought up on the wrong continent, so you wouldn't know this one. You're exempt. Do you know what the mild-mannered janitor? Hong Kong Fooey? Ah, you see, you're just... Where is it gone? Hong Kong Fooey, number one superman. What is it? Number one super guy, anyway? My promise, I've now got that tune. Have you got it now in your heads? I'm just glad to share it with you. If that ruins your day, I'm sorry. Um, Silly and stupid as it may be, the fact is it actually shares some income with pretty much every superhero, uh, movie, cartoon, comic book story. Uh, This intrigue as to the identity of the superhero, whether it's Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, there's this sort of thread that runs through. Who is this superhero? And uh, most of the time, as far as, actually I think all the time, you as the, the watcher, the reader, you're in the know, and most of the time the people who are being rescued from things and saved from things, and for that matter the villains, tend not to know the identity of the superhero. And it doesn't really matter. Because in the end, when it comes to our superhero uh, heroes, it doesn't really matter who they are, because the point is what they do. It adds a bit of intrigue, it adds a bit of mystery. I guess not so much in the case of Hong Kong Fui, but in the rest of them, there's a little bit of mystery and, and sort of suspense. Are they going to be found out? Does it matter? But actually, when it comes to what they do, what they achieve, it doesn't really matter. You know, if Batman saves somebody from a villain, it doesn't really matter. If, if, if he's a you know, multi-millionaire playboy or if he's you know, a, a mild-mannered janitor, it doesn't matter because he does what he does. This passage in the middle of Luke is all about identity, but it's, it is the absolute mirror image, the upside-down opposite of the way superheroes work. And I want to suggest that one of the problems that we've got as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, as people who actually trust Jesus, is that there are times when we are in danger of treating Jesus as not much more than a superhero, whose actions in our lives and for others are more important to us than his identity. Whereas actually what the Bible does and what this passage in Luke 9 does is flip that completely on its head and say that the most important thing to know about Jesus is who he is. Because everything flows from that. Now, if you look at Luke's gospel as a whole, if you read it as one whole story, what you find is that Luke chapter 1 to 8 is this fantastic sort of build-up. You see uh, the birth narratives, the Christmas story, you see the the, the sort of juggernaut beginning to build of Jesus uh, preaching and healing and doing incredible miracles, and it's almost as if at this point in the gospel, Luke stands back and goes, ah, hang on, let's not get too carried away, because the danger is that your heads are going to be turned. You're going to get so excited about the things that Jesus is doing and the things that Jesus is saying that he's going to become simply a superhero to you, somebody who does stuff for you, says stuff to you. Whereas actually what Luke wants to say to us, and in fact Matthew and Mark do exactly the same, what they want to say to us is it's who Jesus is that matters Actually, as well, ironically, given that I guess the superhero thing is because we want stuff to change in our lives, it's actually who Jesus is that makes the difference. I want to suggest that actually what we find here is that in in Luke chapter 9, through these eight days that Luke paints the picture of, of Peter's confession of Christ, you are the Messiah, 
Jesus telling them about his future death and resurrection, and then the transfiguration. And today is in the Church of England, Transfiguration Sunday as it happens. That through these eight days, what you find is Luke sort of lifting the lid and saying, it's no mystery. This isn't meant to simply be intrigue. You're meant to know who Jesus is. And in fact, the single most important question anybody can ever be asked in the whole of their life, from their birth to the death, and the single most important question that anybody can ever answer in the whole of their life, from their birth to the death, is simply, who do you think Jesus is? And that, of course, is what we hear Jesus asking Peter. I hope you've got it in front of you. There in Luke chapter 9, in verse 18, you've got Jesus talking to his friends in private, and he says, who do the crowd say I am? And they, they come up with some ideas. You've, you've got John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets of long ago, and then he turns to them and he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Uh, now, some of you have been listening to me preaching for nearly 12 years now, for which my apologies and my, my prayer and, and sympathy, um, but you'll know that I very, very rarely, if ever, Um, preach a sermon with three points and definitely never one with three points all beginning with the same letter so mark this date in your diary I've got three points all beginning with R it's never going to happen again but just it just they fell out at me I I don't I don't think it stretches anything to say that what Luke is talking about here is that if you want to understand the identity of Jesus you simply want to know who he is that Jesus is the one who is God's reality he's God's rescuer and he's God's rule. God's reality, God's rescue, and God's rule. And because he's God's reality, he's the one who makes God's glory real in your life day by day. That's what he comes to do. Because he's God's rescuer, he is the one who comes to rescue you and to rescue me from our own slavery to self, from all the stuff that trips us up and holds us back. And because he is God's ruler, he is the one who comes to actually lead us through our lives, to give us wisdom to live by, and the confidence that there is a king like no other. Now, the reality bit comes down to this word glory. Uh, Roll the tape back a little bit, back to the Old Testament. If you you trundle your way through the Old Testament from uh, the sort of uh, story part of Genesis as we head into the the creation of uh, God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, all the way through, what you find is that in general... God's sort of reality is somewhat at arm's length. They're constantly reminded, look, God is greater than you, he is holier than you, he's, he's, he's distant in the sense that you can't easily reach him. But God comes to you and he speaks to you through his prophets, people like Samuel, people like Elijah. He, he allows the high priest once a year to enter the Holy of Holies. He allows you to come and worship with sacrifice. But every now and again, every now and again, there is a moment when they see God's glory. The, the Old Testament calls this the Shekinah glory of God. There is a sense uh, that just every now and again, they get a glimpse of the fullness of who God is. Now, the word glory is a fantastic word. In the Old Testament, it's, it's derived from a word that has to do with weight. Okay? There's a weightiness to glory. Um, Uh, In Old Testament times, oil, especially um, richly spiced or perfumed oil, was a thing of great, um, uh, it was very precious, it cost a lot of money, and it was a symbol of anointing. So if somebody was going to be crowned king, they would pour pretty much a jug of of perfumed oil over their head. Doesn't appeal to me at all, I can tell you, but they'd they'd pour. And you'd feel the weight, it's heavy stuff oil, you'd feel it on your head. 
And this idea that the glory of God has a weight to it, a richness to it. And if you say, well, what is the glory of God? It is simply an expression to sort of gather up the wholeness of who God is. When you glimpse God's glory, you're glimpsing something of the rich weightiness of God. And where do you glimpse it? Well, one of the first places that you see it is in the story of Moses, who, of course, is going to appear in this passage. It's going to appear in the transfiguration alongside Jesus. The first place with Moses is the burning bush. He's in the desert. He's in his 40-year-long exile. He's, he's roughly 40 by the time he leaves Egypt. He then has another 40 years in the desert. He's about 80 before he's actually called to lead God's people out of Israel, which is out of Egypt, which is not a bad reminder to those of us who feel we're past it uh, in terms of God's call. But somewhere between, sort of towards the end of that time, maybe in his late 70s, uh, Moses is keeping his goats and he sees this bush that is burning up and yet not being consumed. And he recognises that there is something odd here. He walks towards it and the voice from the bush says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. It's the glory of God revealed. And then the glory of God is somehow seen in these plagues that are sent on Pharaoh. And then most of all, the glory of God is seen leading God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, out of slavery. If you remember that at night time they were led by a pillar of fire, which represented the glory of God, and during the day, well, they're led by a great cloud or column of smoke. What do we see here? When Jesus is up on the mountainside, up in the transfiguration, we see that his face and his clothes are lit like lightning from within. That glory again. And then what happens at the end is the voice from heaven calls out, a cloud descends. And right in the middle of it, Luke uses a single word, just in case we've missed it. He doesn't want us to miss this moment. He talks about, that um, Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure. And the word that Luke uses for departure in Greek is the word for exodus. He wants us to get it. This is God's glory shown. But here's the really remarkable thing. Jesus isn't simply somehow revealed in this moment of glory up on the mountain. He is shown to be the one who brings the reality of God into the everyday of down the mountainside existence. Because it's not somehow in Luke that Jesus is only glorious, only full of the reality of God when he's up on the mountainside, you know, with lightning and smoke. He talks about the glory of God before he goes up on the mountain. He comes down off the mountain and immediately he confronts, if you look at the next passage, immediately he confronts um, a, a lad whose whole life has been torn apart by evil. And the glory of God is seen in him casting out this evil from this lad. And then most of all, we see him pointing ahead to not just the ordinary everyday, but to the cross. Here is the reality of God shown in the moment on the mountaintop, shown in the everyday of walking alongside his disciples by the lakeside, in the crowds, in the temple, in the marketplace. And here is the glory of God shown even, maybe especially, on the cross. None of us want to go through life with God at arm's length. None of us enjoy that sense of aloneness, of the long-distanceness of God, even if we're sure he's there. We hate that feeling of distance. Paul talks about it, about we see through a glass darkly. It's right at the heart of the human condition, that sense of 
desperately wanting to know face-to-face, intimately, what is at the heart of our universe. We long for it. And God says to us, in Jesus, you have the reality of God walking with you. This wasn't just a good human being. And actually, nor was this simply some superman-like superhuman from outer space. This was the glory of God made flesh, who now comes to be with us by his Spirit. Do you know, the things that Jesus did pointed to his glory, but they weren't his glory in itself. He carries the glory of God, and he brings the reality of God into our lives. But Jesus, in his identity, isn't just God's glory, his reality, he's also his rescuer. Moses, the great rescuer of God's people. That's why he's standing next to Jesus. Elijah, another great leader and rescuer of God's people, standing there talking with Jesus on the mountaintop. Luke, as I say, doesn't want us to miss it, talks about the exodus. They were talking about his departure, his exodus, which can mean his death, but also turned them back to that great rescue. Now, we're not slaves in Egypt, but we are slaves, the Bible says, to sin. The beginning of Lent is the perfect time to remember it. Even the most irreligious person who knows anything about Lent would think in terms of it's a time to give things up. Well, you only give things up if they, it's only worth giving anything up, we sort of know at a gut level, if somehow they've got a hold on us. I mean, the litmus test is to think, if, somebody, if I had to give up something for 10 years, not just a few weeks, if I had to give up something for the rest of my life, what would hurt the most? What would be the hardest? I mean, not just food or drink, but a habit, a a pleasure, a phone? What would be the hardest thing to step away from? And the Bible would say that that there is the place to start if we want to understand the anatomy of what sin looks like. That the greatest pleasures in life are also the things that are most likely to have a hold on us. We think we've got a hold on them. We think we're we're holding on to this particular food, this particular drink, this particular habit, this particular whatever it is, bit of social media. We think we've got a hold on them. The Bible makes it very clear, and if we look in our hearts, we know it's true. It has a hold on us. We're slaves, actually, the Bible says, to ourselves in the end. I always talk about sin as that little word with I in the middle of it. It's that self-centeredness. I cannot break free of it. Day by day, I trip up over it again and again and again. I want to be a selfless person. I want to be a generous person. I want to put other people absolutely first without a thought to myself. I want my life to serve other people. I really do want that stuff. But I also know that I have an inbuilt bias to me. I, in the middle, I am a slave to sin. I'm an addict to myself. It, every, every bit as much as somebody might be an addict to, to alcohol or to drugs or to food, I am an addict to myself. Jesus comes to deal with both the consequences of that addiction in forgiveness and to begin to deal with the effects of it in my life through setting me free by his Holy Spirit. Do you see how if we miss the identity of Jesus, we miss out on the offer of God's reality in our lives, 
We expect too little of God. And we miss out on the offer, the, the command almost, to be rescued, to know that we need his rescue. But finally, we also, if we're not careful, miss out on the command to make him our ruler. It's there in the language of messiahship, um, right back at verse 20. Uh, Peter answers, you are uh, the Christ of God. And there's a little footnote in the NIV that you've got in front of you that um, points down to the bottom and says also messiah. They both mean exactly the same thing. One has the Greek derivation, one has the Latin derivation. They simply mean the anointed one. And again, this brings us back to oil, the one on whom oil is poured to anoint them for, almost always, kingship. This is the coming king. And for so much of Israel's history, they longed for, they looked forward to, they had promised for them, they prayed towards, they worked towards the gift of having their own king. They had it in David. David was a just and astonishing leader, but also astonishingly flawed. Solomon, incredibly wise and incredibly foolish, all at the same time. Most brilliant, wise leader, the most appalling parent. And after then, just a litany of failure and chaos and exile. And then the Romans arrived. They were still longing for the day when God would send a ruler. But not just because they wanted to exist as a nation, but because person by person they recognised, just like we do, that one of the greatest gifts anybody can have in life is, to put it simply, to know how to live. I mean, isn't it wonderful on those rare, well, uh, what feels to me like the rare occasions in life when you just know exactly what to do? I feel like, the, you know, the older I get and the further through middle age I get, the fewer occasions I feel like I know exactly what to do next. I, I expected it to be the other way around. Fully expected. When I was in my 20s, I genuinely thought that when I was in my 40s, I, I, I know this is really stupid now standing here at 47, but in my 20s, I really believed that I'd, I'd have this taped by now, that I'd sort of, I'd know what to do. But it seems to me that I know even more now how desperate I am for somebody to tell me. Where should I put my time? Where should I put my priorities? What should I do with my money? How should I be a good dad? I, how, I need wisdom. I actually need somebody to lead me. I need to be, I need to know who the king is and how he says to live. Now, the problem is that this language of kingship, actually the language of Messiah, is almost always used negatively in our culture. And if you say somebody's got a Messiah complex, you're not complimenting them, are you? I think that I, my memory of... I mean, Tony Blair's been in the news recently, but, and this is not a particular political point, by the way, but my memory is that things really started to sort of unravel for Tony Blair when people started poking and prodding him with a sense that he had a, a bit of a messiah complex. That was when people started to sort of go sour for him. The moment somebody gets the impression, rightly or wrongly, that you think you know what you're doing, that you're there to rescue people, that you are the messiah, it's almost always a negative thing. But Jesus here is the one who rules, not from a golden throne and a place of power with a beautiful crown on his head and, and, uh, and a great army behind him. Jesus is pointing ahead to say, I'm going to rule on a cross. That's going to be my throne. And my crown won't be the crown you expect. 
And my rule won't be one of overpowering you, but will be to serve you in suffering and death. Now, I can follow that sort of king. I can trust that sort of ruler. I can know that what he wants for me is absolutely the best for me. Because here is Jesus, the ruler of the universe, who steps down into the darkness of history, who suffers and dies, takes on his shoulders the very worst that our world could throw at him, and does so as my king. The question about Jesus is not how much do I think Jesus could do for me, Not even will he answer my prayers in such a way or such a way. The question that Luke was posing for his readers and fundamentally the question that Jesus posed to his followers was very simply this. Who do I think Jesus is? Who do I think he is? And who do I think he is up here that gets transferred into the way that I live? Because if I truly believe that Jesus is God's reality made flesh, then I will make sure that I go to him and spend time with him because I want the reality of God's glory in my life. Otherwise, life is dry and dusty and empty. Who wouldn't want the reality of God day by day? And if I truly believe that Jesus is God's rescuer, then I'll be reminded each day not to rely on my own slavery-busting powers, my own sense of being able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I will rely on the rescue of Jesus to forgive me of my sin and to begin that process of reshaping my heart so that rather than having I at the centre, I have him at the centre. And if I truly believe that Jesus is God's ruler, his Messiah, his Christ, his King, then I'm going to trust him for wisdom. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to want to be in his kingdom. And I'm going to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come in my life, just as it is in heaven. I said at the beginning, it is the most important question you and I will ever be asked in the whole of our life, from when we're born to when we die. It is the most important question we can ever answer in the whole of our lives, from the day I'm born to the day I die. It's one I should be asked and be asking myself every single day. Who do I think Jesus is? Have I made him simply into some superhero figure? Or a little imaginary friend? Or a pocket advice giver? Or a place simply to go on a Sunday? Or will I believe that he is God's reality, God's rescue, and God's ruler?